0: Hey guys this is buddy and we have another question this one is from an anonymous listener and the question reads what really is fornication what really is fornication so um what is the definition for fornication when we are reading the bible and we see fornication what does it really mean when we say somebody is fornicating what's the person doing right um in trying to define a word there are two things that we need to consider the language from which the word is coming and the context within which the word is applied right so because we are talking about the bible here we would have to um, satisfy these conditions then we will know what fornication is right so what is the bible language what in what language is the bible written three languages aramaic hebrew and Koine greek aramaic is um language or a group of languages that was spoken in ancient Syria very long time ago. And it was spread by conquest and all that. In fact, Aramaic is the language of Jesus. Jesus spoke Aramaic with his disciples, particularly the Galilean dialect. They were Galileans, so they spoke the Galilean dialect. And um, Jesus spoke about three languages. He spoke Aramaic, he spoke Hebrew, and he spoke um, some Koine Greek, you know, just enough to communicate to people who were non-Jewish. Hebrew is the um native language of Israel so or most Israelites or people who are native to Israel speak Hebrew right and so most of the Old Testament was written in Aramaic and Hebrew I know the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra were written in Aramaic, and books like Genesis Psalms and Kodo were written in Hebrew and almost the whole of the New Testament is written in corner Greek right so um when you want to translate a word from one language to another... Because the, the Bible that we read is English, right? It's, it's the English Bible. I'm Anglophone, so I read the English Bible. But when you want to translate something from one language to another, you have to do so in such a way that the original meaning of the communicator, the person speaking, would not be lost. And at the same time, it would make sense to the, the person who is speaking the other language. For instance, maybe you are trying to communicate something to me in Chinese or Mandarin and I'm Anglophone. I cannot understand what you are saying unless you translate it. But the translation must be done in such a way that it says exactly what you meant, what you meant to say. And at the same time, it satisfied the it satisfies the rule the rules of my language. Right? So for instance, let's take the first verse of the Bible. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um the Hebrew, let's even take the first four words of that verse, right? It will read in the Hebrew, it will read Bershit Elohim bara in the beginning, God created. You know, in the English it's like a whole lot of words, right? But in Hebrew it's like it's just three. Elohim Bara. Bershit, if translated directly, means in beginning. Literally, it means in beginning. There's no there in there, right? elohim is a plural masculine noun so translated directly would mean gods not god it could mean a ruler it could mean a god but it's a plural noun so it means it means rulers and it also means gods right but because the writer was trying to convey the um communicate god the idea of god or the the person meant god so it can be rulers it would have read in beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And I believe that the word Elohim right there, the first time the Bible refers to God, the Bible uses a plural noun, a plural masculine noun. It just gives us a sudden glimpse into the nature of God. And in verse 2 and verse 3, it begins to unfold. It says that the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. And then God said, let there be light, right? So, we find the Spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit. We find God, God the Father, and light. Who is light? Lights, the Word. And we understand this by John 1.1. John one says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. Um, uh, everything was made by Him, and without Him, there was nothing made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we know that Jesus is this light because... Um, the light that God called for in Genesis 1-2 or Genesis 1-3 wasn't a sun. It wasn't a sun because the sun and the moon were created on day 4 if you read the creation account. Right? And Jesus also, after his encounter with the woman who was caught in adultery, told the woman that I am the light of this world. Anybody who asks me will have the light of life. Right? And so, when you look at it, Know this is just by the way, when you look at it like that, you suddenly begin to, you know, understand that God is one in essence and three in persons and they are just listed right there, right? But anyway, what we are talking about is translations and I'm trying to say that if we had done a direct translation of the Hebrew, ignoring the, the laws of the language of English, it wouldn't make much sense and it would be totally misleading because it would have read in beginning, God's Created the heavens and the earth. Apart from the fact that it is grammatically wrong in English, it is also not what the writer intends. Because the writer is not trying to communicate the existence of multiple gods. The writer is trying to communicate the existence of only one God, right? And also in in English, they would not have to say in beginning. Wouldn't it make sense. It would have to say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because when you hear it like that in English, you know that there was a beginning. And you know that in the beginning, God created. And you know that the heavens and the earth were created by God in the beginning. Right? It makes perfect sense right now. So, that's the first thing you need to check. You need to check how the translation is done such that it maintains the original meaning and it also makes sense in the language into which it's being translated. Right? Now, the second thing I I, I want to throw light on is... Um, the fact that sometimes in a certain language different words can describe the same thing. And in another language, for the same thing there's only one word. For instance, in the Greek, there are four different words for love. Um, eros means love. Agape means love. Philia means love. Storge means love. But in English, there's only one word for love. When you say love, well, that's it. <laughs> love is love, right? But when you read it in the Greek, like for instance, the New Testament um, is written in Greek, right? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. The word love over there is the word Philadelphia. Right? And um, John 3.16 says, for God will love the world. The word love there is agape. Or you can look at um, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 3. The Bible says that in the the last days, um, many will lack natural affection. The word lack natural affection is the word historikos, meaning lacking love for family members. So, no love for family members. Right? And so, when you just look at the word love without looking at the root word, what word in the Greek is translated as love? Again, you'll be wrong. Because, I mean, in the English language, Like for instance, if I meet my friend Kofi in a public place and maybe we are talking and after a conversation, before we part ways, I say, I love you. Everybody is going to turn and look at me and be like, whoa, you know. And I may now have to start explaining and say, oh no, it's not like that. I really mean I love you as a brother or as a friend or something like that. In English, when you want to use the word love, in order for the full meaning to be conveyed and understood, you would have to qualify it you would have to qualify the love. So, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, it could have read, let love continue. But because the word there is Philadelphia and not agape or Sturkey, it had to be qualified. And it, it now read, let brotherly love continue. Right? And so, when when translating or when you, we are trying to find the meaning of a certain word, we we'll also have to look at that. And then the last thing I, I, I want to shed light on before I i'm going to our main word for the day fornication i mean we are trying to don't don't get lost okay we are still on the word fornication now sometimes certain words are self-definitive like what they say is what they mean they don't have any deeper meaning right for instance the word baptizo in the new testament anywhere you you see the word baptizes the word baptizo baptizo simply means to dip right it, it doesn't mean anything other than that. Because baptizo is like an everyday jargon. Like, for instance, how now we say the word selfie. When I say I'm going to take a selfie, you don't ask me, hey, who is going to take the picture for you? Because the word selfie itself means that me, myself, I'm taking a picture of myself, right? So, you, by saying selfie, I've told you who is taking the picture and whose picture is being taken right? It's just like that for the baptizo, the word baptizo. It's like getting a shirt and you want to wash the shirt because it's dirty, right? And you get a bucket of water and you dip it. You dip the shirt inside the water and you start washing it. What you've done is you've baptized the shirt, right? And, you know, we know um, that this is what it means because of the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip in the desert. When the Ethiopian eunuch was traveling along the desert, of course he had water, because the desert is quite hot and arid, right? You would be dehydrated. You need water. But when after Philip preached to him and he understood the scripture and all that, he said, "What stops me from being baptized? Look at a water body. Baptize me, right?" So in the old times, you know, If you take a Greek speaker and tell them that I want to be baptized, and you use the word baptizo. The person is not going to ask you oh is it by sprinkling or is it by immersion or what because it only means one thing baptism means to dip right and so certain times when we are translating a word we also need to look at that because certain words are just self-explanatory it's not a doctrine or a system or a, it doesn't have any deeper meaning as it were in quotes right or you, you look at another word Proskuneo Proskuneo is translated worship in the New Testament. It's also Greek. proskuneo means kissing the ring of a king or lying prostrate or making obeisance, right? So, for instance, um, any action that you do out of the recognition or the understanding of the rank of the person you are dealing with, that's worship. So, maybe um, all of us are in a room And then somebody of um, importance walks into the room, and then all of us rise up just to acknowledge the person's presence. That's worship, proskuneo. All right. Or maybe um, we are all driving out on the road, and then the president's motorcade is coming, and all of us park on either side of the road for the president to pass. That's proskuneo, worship. All right. And so this word also doesn't necessarily have any strange. Deeper meaning, That's just what it means. right? So when we are trying to translate a word or define it, we'll have to understand some of these simple basic things. Then we can know what type of word it is according to the language it's coming from and the context within which it is found, how it is applied. So now, fornication. <laughs> we are finally here, fornication. The word fornication um, appears in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, it's either the word zonor or the word tasmuth. Zonor and tasmuth both mean fornication and halotry and adultery. So, when you see the Aramaic word tasmuth or the Hebrew word zonor, it means fornication itself. Fornication itself is sleeping with, having sex with someone who you are not married to as an unmarried person. So, you yourself are not married and you are having sex with somebody who you are not married to. right? That's fornication. It can also mean adultery. Adultery means you are married and you are having sex with someone else that you are not married to. That's adultery. Right? And it can also mean halotry. Harlotry is prostitution or um, somebody who trades sex for anything else somebody whose main commodity of exchange and trade is sex so your your main bargaining chip is sex so like maybe you have money i need the money so we have to trade it and if th- my main bargaining chip the thing i'm using as my trade chip is sex so immediately you begin to <laughs> realize that many people walking around are actually prostitutes you see because the only thing they have to offer is sex in exchange for whatever thing that they need but that's not what we are talking about right so that's halotry, prostitution okay and the reason why I'm not saying money is because in the olden days people used sex as a bargaining chip for several things sometimes they used sex for sheep or for jewelry or for you know services even Right. So that's basically it. Anybody whose only bargaining chip in a system of trade is sex, is a harlot or a prostitute. And that's what Zono and, and Tasmut were describing. Right. That's that's what they describe. In the New Testament, the word that is translated fornication is the Greek word pornea. That's the root word of pornography. That's why we get the word pornography. So maybe someone is listening and maybe you were thinking that you're going to ask over the um, where in the Bible does it say we shouldn't watch pornography? Please, anywhere you see in the New Testament, fornication, <laughs> avoid fornication, flee from fornication, flee from sexual immorality. All those words, ponia, ponia, ponia. It, it includes fornication, right? So, what does ponia mean? Ponia can be used as a descriptive word or as a metaphor. When it is used as a descriptive word, it means illicit sex or illicit sexual activity. Illicit means illegal right so all forms of sex that are not legal is porneia. and it even goes further to define i mean when you use um, a strong dictionary the word ponea is broken down um it could mean sex with somebody of the same gender or you know, homosexual sex it could mean lesbian sex it is written there like that you know, um, it's not a mistake it says homosexual sex number one number two lesbian sex number three having sex with an animal number four adultery so having sex with someone you are not married to as a married person number five having sex with a close relative that's also um pornea right so when it is used as a descriptive word this is what it means but sometimes the word pornea is used as a metaphor when it is used as a meta as a metaphor it means idolatry so, serving a god or replacing your object of worship with anything other than god. If your object of worship is not god, you are, what you are doing is porneia, is fornication. right? So, yeah, there we have it. Whenever you see porneia, you would have to look at the context within which it is used and it will tell you whether it is a descriptive word, whether it is describing an action or it is a metaphor for something else or it's a metaphor for describing idolatry. But if we look at the word ponea in its lexical definition, the Greek word poneia, it means homosexual sex, lesbian sex, sex with an animal or bestiality, um, fornication itself, right? That is having sex with, an, with somebody you are not married to as an unmarried person. Adultery, which is having sex with someone you are not married to as a married person. And then it could also mean incest or having sex with a close relative right so yeah basically this is what it means um you can also send me your questions askbuddy at gmail.com askbuddy at gmail.com or you can send me a whatsapp message a voice note a text or um a selfie video containing your question to plus two three three two zero zero eight six four six seven three. 673 that's plus two three three two zero zero eight six four six seven three. god bless you for listening till we meet again bye